Amen. You may be seated. I got like cotton or something on there. What the heck? I've got black pants on. Bad idea. All right. Just ignore that. It's bugging me a little bit. Um, we have a lot to do. I did not get through even half of this in the first service, so we cut some slides. We're going to try to get through this as quick as, I, as possible. Um, and uh, I do want to take this uh, kind of speaker prerogative for a second. And I didn't announce this second service last week, so this will, you'll only get one announcement. On July 7th, the men's group usually takes a break during the uh, summer. Um, but we are going to be meeting at Biscuits Cafe at 745. And we're going to be studying the entire Old Testament uh, in two months, July and August. We're going to do an Old Testament survey. Um, if you've ever wanted to just really dig into the Old Testament a little bit, join us 745 at Biscuits Cafe. I say that to say this. We are still looking for that gentleman who would like to buy us all breakfast all summer. Um, so if you are super spiritual and wealthy, you may join us. If you're poor, just come and you'll join with me. I'm poor as well. And we will uh, have to buy our own breakfast unless someone steps up. All right. But no, seriously, all seriousness, 172nd Sunnyside Biscuits Cafe, 745. I know that you guys are second service um, in that, you know, like you don't get up until 10. But uh, a few of you could just get up for the gospel a little early. Okay, 7.45. Um, and I am, we do encourage you, if you've got a young son uh, or a couple sons that you want to bring, as long as you're buying a breakfast too, uh, bring them along and we'll have a, a great summer. All right, I forgot to say that last week. Let's jump right in and let's review what we've been talking about so far. If you remember, Ben talked the first two weeks about the idea that Jesus the Messiah came and took care of our sins, and therefore we're justified before the Lord, and we can now follow Him freely and fully as atoned people. Then um, we came in and started talking about the reason for love, uh, reason not to fear, and those things. Today we're going to conclude with a final theme, which we're not going to get to till the very end. So we're going to kind of breeze through chapter 5 of 1 John to get to the end, because I think what John did is he culminated his message and gave this final statement, and you'll see what we're talking about in a minute. But as a reminder, we talked about the left turn, right turn. This is kind of a visual way to summarize the book of John. So you have a struggle or experience. For example, a lot of you last couple of weeks have been convinced that you need to love people, truly love people, patient, gentle, kind. Um, you know, for me, it means less sarcasm. Type, those types of things. That's how you love people. And so, we, you can look at that and you have one or two responses. You can go, I am going to love people. Okay, that, I'm going to do it. I'm going to discipline myself to do it. If you look at me, I'm not the most disciplined dude in the world right here. Like, if there is a bag of chips open, I will take it down. All right. So, scriptural truth, you hit that. You're like, I got to love. I got to be patient. I got to be gentle, kind, all these things. Um, and then you go in self-discipline. We call this the left turn. And then if you try to do it on your own, you're fighting the flesh. And only two responses can happen when you do this, pride or shame. Pride or shame. Neither one of them are biblical modeled examples of how we should react. You're either prideful that you conquered it for a temporary time or shameful that you didn't. Um, and then this left turn cycle continues. This left turn is a focus on sin it is a behavior-focused religion. This is what Ben was talking about. We are not in a faith, a religion, a worldview that is behaviorally focused. We don't pray five times to the east. We don't have to meditate. We live in freedom 
from the bondage of sin, not behaviorally focused. This is, if you go this route, though, you begin to make checklists that you got to check off and conquer yourself, okay? Uh, the, the right turn, on the other hand, is this. You want to love, you want to do these things, and what, the first thing that happens is that you humble yourself, okay? And here's the key. Humility can only be practiced in community. In fact, if there is no humility, you cannot even have community, so one of the problems in the church today is that we all kind of individualize our faith. We all come in here. We barely know anybody else here, and we do it on our own. And I will say this. You cannot practice humility on your own, okay? You can't. Think about it. What humility is is you look at another individual and you say, this person, because they are made in the image of God, they are just as good. You kind of put them on a stool, and they're just as good as I am. And I'm going to serve that person, and I'm going to love that person, Humility is lifting other people up, and, and it cannot be practiced on your own. So in humility, you come, and I'm convinced, scripturally speaking, I think this is scriptural, that only, that's when the Holy Spirit begins to really move in your life. That's when you experience the Holy Spirit at its greatest point. Holy Spirit allows for self-control, and this in community, in community, in humility amongst the brethren, amongst the community of believers, we see the Holy Spirit working through us. And this is, I think, a good summary, a visual summary of 1 John. Okay? This is a right-turn focus on Him. It's focused on God, and it's a relationally focused religion. Relationally focused religion. Jesus took care of what we need. Now we follow Him freely in love. Does that make sense? So this is where we've been. Um, so this is the last time you'll see the model because today we're gonna, I'm going to add to this a little bit. We're going to continue moving forward uh, in 1 John 5. Let's dive into the text now. Um, and there, uh, we're going to breeze through the text. I don't mean to do this. It's not typical, but I want to try to read the whole text. Um, I'm going to highlight a few things in the text, and then we're going to focus really on the last verse. Here we go. Everyone, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1 starts this, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Now, keep in mind, if you're a child of God, right, that's the stated fact of, of, of 1 John, then if you love God, you're going to love his children, right? That's the point. This is why we love one another, okay? If you hate somebody, if you're hating them, then you're not loving God. You're not obeying his commands, okay? So, uh, by loving God and carrying out his commands, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. How? Right turn. In community, humility, the Holy Spirit begins to work, and all your weaknesses begin to become self-controlled. Now, it doesn't, you're not perfect, not arguing for that, I'm just saying it becomes easier and easier and easier to follow Him. I can attest to this. I remember when I was living a behavior-focused religious life, okay, I've got to pray this time. I've got to read the Scripture. Um, I need to pray before every meal. I started doing this behavior-focused thing. What has happened in my life is I've turned to Him and started just like, and I have fr deep friends that I just say, hey guys, this is my struggle, boom. And these friends hold me accountable. They lift me up. They strengthen and encourage me. They are humble to me. I'm humble to them. I have found that my faith in following what Jesus has asked me to do has become easier. 
Not all the time, but more and more. And I have, I have personally experienced this in my own life. I have found more freedom in just following him. There are, some, I, there are some struggles and experiences that I've had where I'm like, man, I'll never have control over that. And the Lord begins to work. The Holy Spirit will do amazing things when we do this, okay? And his commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world, the Holy Spirit in them. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one that believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So the only ones who've overcome the world are those who follow him. That's a stated truth. Okay? Let's keep going. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. We're going to get to that in just a minute. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. Makes sense. Which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe in God made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God that God has given about his son. Let's pause real quick. Water, blood, the Spirit. These are the three that testify to this truth that we're talking about. This fact that we live in eternal life because of what he did. Now, it's an interesting uh, dialogue. In fact, this is one of the most confusing passages in all of the New Testament. What does it mean when it says the water and blood testify? Well, on a Quick reading, most, commenta- uh, most commentaries, and by the way, if you want to read some of them, I actually read some of the commentaries in the previous service. We're going to cut it for sake of time because we went 10 over, and I get in trouble when I do that. So, um, what the water is, the water is the baptism, okay? When you see water, what that is is when you get into the water and you're dipped, and it is a symbol of you being cleaned. You're clean, Right? Like, how many of you like your children to take regular baths? Right? Me, right here. Like, we're in deodorant phase. Like, it's a miracle when deodorant makes it on. Um, and it is, uh, it is obvious when deodorant doesn't make it on in our family. There's oftentimes I'll come to breakfast, and I literally pass out, wake up, looking up, and I go, what happened? And I go, oh, deodorant did not happen. Okay. So... That is what water represents, the baptism, the clean, the cleansing of the person. The blood is the atonement. It's the cross. It's when he was crucified for our sins. Now, why does John use this? Why didn't he just say baptism and crucifixion? Well, a lot of commentators, including John Calvin and others, and, I was in, and we have the text, but we're not going to show it. A lot of commentators think that what he did is he was using these terms to not only show a primary meaning baptism and atonement, but also what I call a secondary meaning. And here it is, water equals baptism, blood equals atonement. Here's the secondary. The secondary is this. Is it the next slide? The secondary is this, that the law, the law is now abolished. Because if you read the Levitical, if you read Old Testament, you see blood and water used a lot. And the reason John used that term is not only was he talking about the baptism of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus, but he's also saying, hey, by the way, the Messiah has now come. Part of the testimony is now the Old Testament that required blood and water 
all the time in a lot of the Levitical rituals to atone for the sins of the Israelites as a precursor, as an outlook, or as an outline for the coming Messiah, that has come true. So part of this three-pronged testimony is the baptism, the atonement, and the abolition of the Old Testament law. Not for the sake of the law, but the law was exist to foreshadow, to show what Jesus would have to do. When you're reading Levitical, when you're reading Leviticus and Numbers and those things in the, in the uh, Old Testament, in the Pentateuch, what you're actually reading is they had to do all these things with animals as a precursor, as a foreshadow of what the Messiah would do. That's why John is using this analogy here. He's using this. This is part of the testimony. So you have the water, the blood, and the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit work? When we love, when we follow His commands, the Holy Spirit begins to work in our life. And all three of these become a testimony from God that Jesus is the Messiah that was promised and the eternal life can happen. That's what he's saying here, okay? I hope that makes sense. We're going to keep cranking. All right, and this is the testimony. God has given eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Sorry, our slides are a little, we had to delete some, so they're a little out of order. So, this is what uh, John, his thesis is. Remember, you have eternal life, love one another, follow his commands, because that's what a follower does. And anyone who doesn't do that is not following. Okay? This is what John has been about. Now, let's keep reading. Verse 13, 1 John, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He states the reason he wrote the book. This is what's important for us. These three things testify to this. You will live forever. That's the truth. That's the hope. That's why you show up on Sunday morning. That's why you come to Biscuits Cafe at 745. Just saying. This is why he wrote it. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, He will hear us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. Now, that does not mean, this is not a name it, claim it passage. Because if you're in humility and love and following Him, your desires begin to align with His desires. And the things you ask for are not the things you would ask for if you're not following Him. Does that make sense? So, I do not pray regularly for a Ferrari. I would love to have a Ferrari, but that's the old Chris. The reason I want a Ferrari, we'll talk about in a minute. I pray for the things that God wants us to pray for. I pray for this lost world, and I pray and say, Lord, use Eastridge to reach this part of the lost world because it's hopeless and we should have compassion. And that's what we begin to pray for, and it begins to consume us. It begins to be everything we're about. I testify to this as a person where God took this selfish man who began to follow him in 1992, and he began to change my heart, and now it's weird. My desires have totally shifted. It's, it, it, I'm not perfect, believe me. Some people know me. Like, uh, you know, Steve knows me. And Steve can tell you, he could preach next week on all my flaws. And he would need both services. But that 
is God likes to use the least of these. God likes to take and say, watch what I can do through that guy. And everybody's looking like, that dude? Yeah, watch what I can do. Watch what I can do through that gal. It's amazing. So this is what 1 John is going through. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. Notice what it doesn't say. If you see a brother and sister commit a sin, please go gossip throughout the whole church about it. Pray for them. Now, what's the sin that leads to death? We're going to talk about it. There's an, I think he answers it in the end. Uh, we'll get to it in just a minute. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I am not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is a sin that, do, and there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's some sin that we're going to commit that does not lead to death, but there is some that does. We're going to talk about what that is in just a minute. Okay. We know, let's skip to verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe, and the evil one cannot harm them. The reason is the Spirit of God. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true." And we are in him who is true by being the son of Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then John ends with this, this verse. And I believe this is where things can lead to death. Ready? Dear children, keep yourself from idols. That's how he ends. It's a really crazy book. I'm not sure. John talks about love. He talks about fear. He talks about uh, idols. But idols, he doesn't mention until the very end of the book. It's the last thing he writes in this book. And it's really interesting. And there's so many, uh, there's a lot of commentary about this. Um, we're not going to dig into that. But I believe that idols in our life things that distract us, that diminish the role of God in our life. We're going to talk about those are in just a minute. Idols are the thing that lead to death. Idols are the thing that can really destroy us. And I want to talk about idols on a practical level first, and then I want to talk about idols on a philosophical, uh, theological, bigger level, okay? What is it in the, little, in the practical world, what things affect us, I'm going to give you a few examples, but then what is, the, what is the Western world, especially America, Canada, Europe, what's happening to us philosophically? What idol are we beginning to follow as a whole society that's destroying us? Let's talk about that, but let's start practical first, okay? Practically speaking, um, there is a book out there called Gospel Treason, um, and I'm going to just pull a couple quotes from it real quick. Uh, because I think it helps illustrate some of the idols that we may follow practically in our own lives that I really want you to, be, to pay attention to. Um, but uh, uh, the, the name of the book, Gospel Treason, it's by Bragg Bigney, and uh, this is a great book. We use it uh, in training to train people to help with some uh, counseling uh, is really what it's for, because a lot of counselors believe that what is going on, a lot of us have idols in our life that have really stolen usually our identity or something. They've stolen something in us. They've diminished the role of God in our life. And that's what causes all of our relational heartache and problems, okay? 
Basically, and I, I, I'm not a counselor, so bear with me, but basically what happened is some type of sin is in your life, and it is controlling you. It's controlling you. And again, the left turn, right turn model, all these apply, but we're not, that's not what we're going to talk about. So let me just give a few quotes from this book, Gospel Treason, and talk about practical things, okay? First of all, uh, in Gospel Treason, it says this, when you're snared in the trap of idolatry, you take on an entirely different identity. You start redefining yourself in light of that particular idol. Now, not only do you live for your marriage or your kids, you so define yourself by your idol that you become your marriage or your kids. All right, this is hard. This is a hard one. So many, and I'm gonna just, and, and I don't mean to overgeneralize, okay? I apologize now. If you have a complaint, feel free to share it with Danae. I'm, it might get to me. Who cares? Okay. So many of us, we are so into our kids or our marriage or our family that that becomes our identity. And that is an idol. And let me just, I'm, this hit me pretty hard. And, and guys can get into this too. We define ourselves by our family. It tends to be the, the moms more. Uh, it's that mom instinct, I think. But what ends up happening is this, and I'll never forget this. One day, my, the guy who led me to Jesus, we got to work together in ministry for about 10 years. And one day we, were, we had offices we shared. And one day he goes, uh, we were talking about how we pray for our kids. And he goes, I pray that my kids will suffer. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. And I go, what do you mean? And he goes, I pray that God will bring hardships into their life. And I'm like, that is a weird prayer. And he said, no, we only grow in trials, tribulations, suffering, and pain. Have you ever met a triathlete that didn't go through a painful process to get in shape? We only grow in trial, temptation, uh, trial tribulation, suffering, and pain. That's how we grow. We don't grow when we're on vacation. We do. I grow this way. But we don't grow significantly. We don't mature. Think about how much you've grown in your own life and look at the situation that God put you in, the circumstances that he did to help you grow. And look at what the world is doing right now. We are trying to protect our kids from every little suffering, any, anything that can cause a little bit. They're wanting to outlaw dodgeball right now. Dodgeball helps kids grow. All right? I hated dodgeball. I, didn't, I was not a big fan of dodgeball. I'm not the most stealth individual. I know that's hard to believe. All right? I run a flat 12-12, okay? Don't even know what that means. Never time myself. I would probably pass out before I got to the finish line if they were timing me. But, but dodgeball helps you grow, right? When your kid is learning to ride a bike, do they learn better uh, from falling? They learn better from falling down. They start to get the feel. That's how we grow. God puts circumstances in our life that bring pressure, that bring a little bit of trial, and we mature. Okay? So, he said that. Then I began to realize, well, why don't I pray for suffering? And, it was, and the Lord hit me. He's like, because you're a little bit afraid. You don't trust me. And I used to, because I travel, I travel a lot. And um, every time I used to travel, I used to have this weird fear that would, it would hit me. Here was the fear, okay? And if you get fear in your life, there's probably an idol behind it. So here it was. I would be afraid this would be the last time I would see my son or one of my sons alive. It was the weirdest thing. But I, I would go to bed at night before my trip, and I would go, this could be the last time I see Cameron. 
the next day, and they must have thought it was weird, but I would be like, dude, let's have breakfast together. And I would do all, and this fear would grip me because they were becoming my idol. And one day I remember I was out praying. The Lord's like, are you ready to pray for some suffering? I'm like, all right, Lord, I'm going to surrender. Remember we just sang the surrender. I will surrender all. I'm willing to surrender my kids to you. If you choose to take my kids or me, whatever, or my wife, I give that to you. I, it will be painful. It will be utterly painful. But I trust you. That's one idol. That's one. And they identify that here. Notice that my identity became my kids. Here's another idol. Let's go to the next one that they, uh, Brad talks about. One of the most common identity replacements is I am my success. You define yourself in terms of achievements if you live for praise, the recognition, the attaboys, you cross in line from working for the glory of God to idolatry, and it will ensnare you. Here's how we do it today, okay? And I've done this. I am a workaholic. And we actually think that, we say it in such a way, like you're, you, you're kind of saying, yeah, I'm a workaholic. But really, you're like, I want them to know that I work really hard that I sacrifice everything and I put in 80 hours a week. And that becomes our idol. And that is gripping us. Let me ask you, are you willing to practice the Sabbath? Are you willing to take one day and give it to the Lord and focus time on Him and relax and just rest? So many of us can't because we're workaholics. we got to constantly feel it. Because we feel like if we're super busy and people see that we're super busy, people will think higher of us and that becomes our identity. And that is crazy. And I am convinced that workaholics are taking over and they're just too busy for the Lord. That is an idol. And it leads to death. So there's one. Here's another one. Uh, If anything, and this is a definition, if anything other than God and His precious gospel, that is good news, becomes your vision... If anything else begins to rule the landscape of your heart, you will find yourself in trouble. You will be frustrated. Are you starting to get it a little bit here? These are some of the idols we have. There's so many. It could be like you like, you know, like material things. You just live, and the only thing that seems to fulfill you is when you hit the Amazon buy now button, you know. Some of you, your idols become your phone, and, you know, you just can't put it down. I don't know what the idols are in your life, but if you want to practice a right turn, here's what you do. If you're married, you just go to your wife or your husband and you go, hey, in all honesty, what do you think some of my idols are? See, you're humble. First of all, you recognize that you have idols, you have issues. Believe me, I don't know all of you personally, but everyone I know has issues. So you probably have issues. If you don't have issues, your issue is you don't have issues. It's weird. This is your idol. Let someone tell you. You have to have people that are willing and able to speak freely into your life. Humbly say, this is your idol. Or at least this looks like it. Right now, um, we all recognize uh, my family is very much a workaholic family. And we realize the destructive nature of that. Um, and so the, the men in our, my, my two brothers and my father, we get on a Bible study. My brother lives in South Dakota, but we get on a Bible study every week on the phone and we've committed for one year to study what the Sabbath and prayer mean. 
because we all recognize that's our idol. And we do not want that. I do not want to be the guy in the end who said he worked so hard that he forgot all his relationships and didn't have time to love people. What is your idol? Be, be real with people. If you're not married, find a really close friend or whatever and say, will you help me identify my idol? Take that step of humility and ask in community so that the Holy Spirit can begin to work in your life. It works, I promise. But then let's talk about what is going on in the bigger world. What is going on in our world today? We have fundamentally run into an idol of materialism in our world. It is, it is pervasive, it is ugly, and it is horrible. We define ourselves by what we can consume now. We pick our churches based on what we can consume. This is what I mean by this, okay? And I'm guilty of this too, please. We visited a lot of churches when we were looking for churches, Christy and I, and there was churches, and my wife is just very, like, whatever you pick, that's how she is. And I remember, oh, I can't go to that church, they don't have, they don't have a good children's ministry. I can't go to that church, the, you know, they don't have a drummer in their, in their band, you know. And we begin to pick our churches based on the amenities they have. And you have to pause at some point. I'm not saying some of these amenities aren't nice. You have to pause at some point and say, is there an idol in my life that says that I'm supposed to choose the community I'm going to war with based on the luxuries and amenities that church has? We all do it. So what is going on in our world? What worldview are we taking on that's causing this? Why is it that Amazon is exploding? We have to identify this, and I think it's identified by Francis Schaeffer and Nancy Piercy and others in a very real way. Let's, let's talk about that. Nancy Piercy wrote a book that we take our leaders through at the Navigators, and it's called Finding Truth. In Finding Truth, she really begins to identify the big idol of our world. Um, and uh, so let me read a little bit. Let's get right into this. Uh, and I've got a lot of quotes, but here's what she says. Whatever does not fit into the box will be dismissed, devalued, or outright de denied. Reductionist thinking can be summarized as saying, in my worldview, does not account for X, so much the worse for X. Idols are, popu are popular precisely because they cut reality down to size. They can be stuffed into a box and controlled. They eliminate those dimensions of reality that would falsify the worldview. You can make any worldview appear successful simply by denying anything that does not fit in the box. Okay, what does that mean? That's a lot of wordage there. Okay, what she's basically saying is what we've become accustomed to is we don't like to be uncomfortable, right? We like to, we like to think we got it all figured out, okay? If you ever met a Republican who actually tells you that he's a Republican or a conservative, that's the word they might use, who isn't a little bit confident in his conservatism? Okay, I've met one. That's me. My wife thinks I am the most confident, arrogant dude out there. She'll tell me that. You're a little arrogant in that statement, right? That's what we do. My wife keeps me humble. All right, so there you go. That's what you have. And what happens, though, whenever uh, something doesn't quite work? Like, what if there is some reality a little bit to uh, maybe wage discrimination or some word that has been made up on the other side that we just tend to deny? What if one of those is actually true? Does, it allow, does that truth make it into our worldview? No, we just dismiss it. 
We're not even willing to listen to the other side. I'm not saying always, but generally speaking, when we disagree with something, we just begin to turn it off right then and there. There is no dialogue anymore. This is what happens in our political situation. That's what's going on right now. One side just stays silent. They ignore you mentally, and they just lock you down. The other side shouts and screams. Both of them are ignoring, just have a different manifestation. Why is it we can't talk about things and and affirm things? Because we reduce things to what's comfortable to us. That's what we do. So that's what she means by reductionism. Reductionism is taking some stated fact. Here's, here's Here's one. How many of you are conscious right now? If you're not raising your hand, that's okay. I hope your nap is good. Um, You're conscious. We think about it. Do you know in a material framework they cannot explain consciousness? So now consciousness is simply being defined as an illusion. And now we're saying things like AI will eventually come and we'll be able to replicate consciousness through the brain, you know, replicate what we can do. See, what we've done is we've reduced personhood. See how we're reducing it? This is it. I just spent, I was at Biola uh, last month, and I was spending time with a philosopher who actually debates people at Google AI and stuff. He actually does debates, uh, uh, named Dr. Gouda. And we had this, like, two-hour lunch where we were discussing this stuff, and he's like, it's crazy what they're believing. They're reducing it. They're reducing artificial intelligence and saying it's consciousness. Our brain is nothing more than a programmed computer. But it doesn't work. You can't. You have to deny so much about consciousness to make that fit in your box. That's why it's, it's, you know, we do these apologetics things, and I talk about consciousness in my apologetics stuff because it's one of those things we've reduced, and we actually think we're a computer program. And you have to ask yourself at some point, where does will come in and love and emotion, all these things that that truly exist, we know it, but we just deny it. This is part of the materialistic framework. That's reductionism. So then Nancy Piercy goes on, because humans are made in God's image, that's a truth, they often do treat others with dignity and respect. We want to. They engage in humanitarian projects and advocate for human rights. The problem is that a non-biblical worldview provides no logical basis for altruistic behavior. You have no reason to love someone if we're just computers. I've got multiple computers in my house, and they don't love one another. Do you get it? Because we've reduced it. For example, the late Richard Rorty was uh, revered as a philosopher of democracy, yet he wrote, I do not know how to justify or defend social democracy. In the large philosophical way, he was acknowledging, acknowledging that he had no basis on his own highest ideals under his worldview in evangelism. It, uh, in evangelism, it can often be effective to walk people through implications of their worldview to show it provides no basis for their own highest moral human ideas. Let me just say this. Materialism gives you no room for morality, period. We don't have time to walk that through, but you can't even define what good and bad are because you have no standard at which to do it. Quick example, in Oregon, how do we know what the law is? Well, there's this thing called the Oregon Revised Statues. All the laws are written out. If you violate those rules, you violate the law. So we have a standard in Oregon called the ORS. In their philosophical view, in materialism's philosophical worldview, they have no ORS. So what's right and wrong? Whatever you so desire. You see, they've reduced it because they've taken God away. That's what she's talking about. Reductionism is the key to explaining why idols lead to immoral behavior. 
why Romans 1 ends with a list of destructive and self-destructive behavior. When we dehumanize people in our thinking, we eventually mistreat, oppress, abuse, and exploit them in our actions. That's what's going on in the world today. It is not a problem of conservatism and progressivism and liberalism. It is a problem with worldview. It is a problem with the idols that our world is beginning to worship, that being that of materialism. Okay? So let me give you a little background because we're going to, I'm going to quote a couple more things. Hey, we're doing pretty good on time. All right. Here, let me give you a couple of diagrams. All right. Most of us, I'm just going to help you understand, uh, a lot of us who are uh, Christians, Sometimes we'll hear someone state a, a view, and I'm going to use a view that's a little bit controversial now, but I'm going to state it. Um, and, uh, and, and please, if this is, I'm not trying to offend anyone, um, I, but I do believe this is a true statement, and you're going to hear it, and I think most of you will say, yep, I think that's a true statement. Here it is. You can either be a man or a woman. You cannot be both a man and a woman, okay? Now, all right, and I'm not, we're not trying, I'm not trying to open up the big can of worms here. I'm just saying th- all of you in here think that's somewhat logical, okay? And how do we know that? If you go to any country that isn't dealing with gender uh, identity politics and that kind of stuff right now, if you go and you are clearly a man and you have a deep voice and you've got your hair cut and you stand there and they go, are you male or female? And you say female, they will likely think you're lying, because the world in reality can only think didactically. This is what didactic thinking is. You have thesis, a true statement, antithesis or antithesis, a false statement. That's how we think. Either something is true or it's a lie. That's how we think. That's how most people in the world really think, even in countries that are pantheistic and so forth. Okay, that's how we think. Now, what is happening is that this philosopher named Hegel came in, and Hegel developed an idea, and his idea was amazing, uh, really revolutionary. In fact, a lot of great philosophers, uh, Christian philosophers, including Francis Schaeffer, Nancy Piercy, and others, believe Hegel was the beginning of the big problem we have in America today, and here's what it is. He believes, well, yeah, there's a thesis, and there's an antithesis, but every now and then, you can bring the two together and make them both true, both and, and that is called synthesis. You can synthesize it. Well, what happens when you do that? Well, you synthesize this, and it becomes a new thesis. Then there's an antithesis, and then, by the way, you synthesize that and make them both true somehow. And this is what's happened in our world. And here is what happens. It starts to spiral. Uh, Next slide. You have thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is a new thesis, synthesis, uh, antithesis, synthesis. You see how it's going? This is the idea of progressivism. See, what happens is we are evolving into something greater. You had a truth here. It worked for them. They learned some stuff. They got better truth, and they got better truth, and better, and better, and better, and they evolved into something greater, even though depression and suicide and all kinds of other things are up in America now. It was better than the 1950s. Yeah, there were some things in the 1950s that weren't right, but they were violating the absolute principles. They were, ap- they were uh, violating God's provision of love. It wasn't that we needed to progress, but this is what Hegel developed, and this is called the dialectical way of thinking. Dialectic, okay? 
So you have thesis, antithesis, synthesis, this idea of progressivism. Guess who two individuals this guy greatly influenced? In fact, many philosophers say if it weren't for him, two major modes of thinking would have not come about. You know, number one, Karl Marx, communism. As thesis, antithesis thinkers, as didactic thinkers, most of you probably think that Karl Marx thought it was either capitalism or communism but he was dialectical. He actually thought you had to start with capitalism first, and then you evolved to socialism, and then communism. I'm way oversimplifying it for purposes today, but that's what he thought. You had to progress to communism. You couldn't just start with it. And so communism was a replacement for a capitalist system. It was a way to flatten society. And here's what he thought. This is Robbie Zacharias points this out. Here's what he believed. You could both be the boss and the worker. Both and. Get it? That's what's happening in our culture. We're trying to flatten it. When reality is you can't flatten it. There is hierarchy. You've got to have it. it. It exists. There is a boss and there are workers. You're either the boss or you're the worker. Now, some of you are the boss and the worker, but it's just hierarchically down. Communism tries to flatten it. That is dialectical thinking, okay? So basically what this is, this is the ejection of absolutes. There's no more foundation for truth. This is what Hegel introduced. No more absolutes. And this is where our world is going. This is the idol that our world is taking on. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. Don't try to make your truth my truth. The problem, there's so many problems with this way of thinking, but this is what's taking our world. And not only that, but Marxism not only was dialectical, but you know what it's called, what the system is called? It's called dialectical materialism. In communism, spirituality and all that's not even important. Only the materialism is important. That's it. It's the breaking up, it's the sharing of material things. The other great person to be influenced by Hegelian uh, philosophy was Charles Darwin. Evolutionary theory came about because of Hegel. All Charles Darwin did is take that idea of thinking to, the, to uh, bio, biology. And so you got some like amoeba, he's not perfect, and then, you know, we progress till we get humans. And then humans are going to progress to whatever, supercomputers, I don't know. That's where it came from. Nancy Piercy continues, what Hegel was offering was a spiritualized version of evolution. Nietzsche even said that without Hegel, there would be no Darwin. The difference in, is that Hegel applied the concept of evolution not to biology, but to the world of ideas. His claim was that all our ideas, law, morality, religion, art, political ideas, result from gradual actualization of the universal mind. Over the course of history, everything is caught up in a vast historical process advancing toward the final state, or final perfect state. We're evolving. So your hope isn't in the past and what Jesus did, your hope is in the future. And you can't see it yet. It's not actualized. There's all kinds of problems with this worldview. But here's the main problem. Nancy Piercy states it. I'm going to read her quote, but then I'll say it in a different way. What is the logical flaw in, in historicism? It is self-refuting. The claim that every idea is a partial relative truth must include its own claim. Like every other evolving idea, it is relative to its own moment in history and therefore not true in any trans-historical sense. As philosopher John Passamore says, you cannot maintain a timeless philosophical truth that there is no timeless philosophical truth. Get it? 
Hegel avoided this devastating conclusion only by tactfully making an exception for himself. He wrote as though he alone was mysteriously able to arise above the evolutionary process, as though he alone was capable of an objective, timeless, complete view of the entire historical process. Okay, so let me state this a different way. This is a Ravi way of saying it. All right? Didactic. Either I'm a man or I'm a woman. That's didactic. Dialectical. I am both a man and a woman. Now, here's the problem. When you present two arguments to someone, they either have to choose the didactic way or the dialectical way. It's self-refuting. In other words, Hegel tried to make a timeless statement that doesn't evolve itself. Do you get it? Does that make sense? It's self-refuting. It doesn't work. It actually breaks down. Even in pantheistic India, even in India where their worldview, Hinduism and Buddhism is pantheistic, even there, guess what happens? When they're crossing the street, they look both ways because it's either them or the bus. That's Ravi Zacharias, right? Like how many of you, if you're postmodern, how many of you believe if you get hit by a car, it will hurt, right? The problem with dialectical is it doesn't work in the real way. Albert Moeller actually predicts that the gender identity debate that's going on now can't work. We will never get to the point where we're calling ourselves all these pronouns for a lot of reasons, but because in reality, it doesn't work. When you get admitted to the hospital because something's going on, the doctor needs to know either you're a man or a woman because there are very different things going on in our biology. That's the bottom line. Look how confused the world is right now over this thing. You cannot apply dialectical thinking in reality. That's the problem. We try to do it in philosophy, and this is where our world's going. Our world idolizes itself and wants to develop its own truth outside the absolutes. And it is destroying our world. And our response can't be that of anger Our response needs to be a prayer and love because people are looking and they're desperate. And we have to remember it's the spiritual warfare going on. It's not them. Our battle is not necessarily liberal thinking or progressivism or anything, or, or even conservatism. There's some conservatism that's absolutely atrocious right now. Our battle is against, not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in high places. It's a spiritual battle. And I say that because I don't believe in just a material world like the world wants to believe. Idols reduce and deny when truth, when truth is reduced and deny, fear creeps in and love cannot flourish. That's the final thesis. That's what an idol does. And idols will lead to death. Let me give you some examples of idols real quick. In Islam, Islam, you have Allah, one God not a trinity, one God. That's all you have, Allah. There's no others. How does a God who lived in eternity, who has no one to relate to, know love, compassion, dialogue, sharing? You can't get it. Islam reduces you to believing in no personhood. Islam is an idol. Naturalism denies this. They reduce. They say there is no image of God. We're just computers. There is no free will, even though you feel like you have it. 
There is no personhood, there is no consciousness, there is no special revelation, there's no miracles, there's nothing outside the cosmos to influence the cosmos, there's no ability to love, laugh, play, explore, there's no morality, good luck. Money reduces everything to what can be put, have a value put on it. It's what you can buy. Do you think it's sad that when someone's life is lost, you can sue them to replace them with some value? That is reducing who people are. Buying of things tries to replace a personal God with impersonal objects. Good looks. This is why I'm so glad God didn't give me this. Good looks reduces people to something to be lusted after, right? I mean, I can walk safely down the road and know no one's lusting after me, okay? I thank the Lord for that. All right. If you have that fault, please make yourself uglier or something. I don't know. Okay. Fame reduces those around you, around the famous, to exist, to exalt the famous. How many of you ever wanted to be famous? Did you know that there's a stat that says that 40 plus percent of millennials want to be famous? Their idol is fame. All fame is is reducing people below you. They, you want a following. You want people to go, That's, I want to be that guy. And they're pointing at you. It reduces people. Your phone, your phone re- reduces you to an object controlled uh, that controls you, even though it's, been, it's meant to uh, be controlled by you. Fear of anything but God says that God is not able to handle that which you are afraid of. Fear of losing something, so you secure it. That thing becomes more important than what God has for your life. Are you starting to get it? Idols lead to death. Idols do not allow us to love fully because something is blocking. So here's what I encourage you to do. I'm going to pray for you right now because I believe the Spirit is active and working and does amazing things. I'm going to pray right now that God will help us as Eastridge, as a community, love one another, that our fears will go away and only the fear of the Lord will, will remain, and that we will begin to identify our idols in our community. We will begin to identify the idols in our lives so we can get rid of it, so that the Holy Spirit can begin to do a powerful move in this church. We're going to pray big. That's what Dwayne says. So let's pray right now as the worship band comes up, and let me pray for those three things in your life. Father God, I just come to you now, and this is the truth of 1 John, and we want to take that truth, and we want to see it applied in our life. Right now, Lord, I pray that every individual in here who's following you, that they will have a deep, undeniable desire to love people, and that you will show them how. That they will begin to leave the fears that permeate this world behind, and you will show them what fears to let go of. And that we will begin to eradicate the idols that cause us not to follow you and lead to death. Father, we ask all these things knowing that you are at work. And we thank you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.